0: The third picture of the Divine Romance, and my personal favourite, is the Song of Solomon, which gives a wonderful picture of the love relationship between Christ and the Church. It's the story of Solomon, who is a type of Christ. His beloved Shulamith is a type of the Church. Shulamith is the feminine form of Solomon, and both names mean peace. One day, King Solomon, dressed as a shepherd and not as a king, goes to the countryside and inspects his flocks. In his traveling, he comes across a young country girl who is looking after her family's vineyards, and they fell in love. He initially presented himself to her as a shepherd lover because he wanted their relationship to be based on love rather than force, with her being overwhelmed by his kingly power. This is a picture of Christ's first coming, clothed in a human nature, dressed as an ordinary man, with his majesty veiled. He didn't come as the king in all his glory, for then we would be forced to submit to him because of his power. Rather, he wanted a relationship with us based on love. He came dressed as the good shepherd, wanting to win our heart with his love, not his power. He wants us to love him for who he is in himself. The couple enjoyed a wonderful courtship where he revealed himself as a loving shepherd. It says that he declared his love for her and awoke her love under the apple tree. Likewise, Christ demonstrated and declared his love for us under the tree of Calvary. Once they had got to know each other at some point, he would have had to give her an amazing revelation about himself, saying, There's something I have to tell you. I'm not just a shepherd. I'm also the king. She would have laughed. But as she looked at him again, she she would have realized that he was serious. Now she had to trust him and accept it by faith without seeing his majesty. And she did believe him. Likewise, when Jesus says to us, I'm not just the good shepherd, I'm also the king of kings, we know he's true, and we believe him, even though we haven't seen his glory. Then Solomon proposed. She accepted, and they became betrothed, declaring vows of undying love to each other. Then he said he had to go away, up to Jerusalem, to prepare a place for her in the royal palace, and to get everything ready for the wedding. But he also promised that when all was done, he would return and take her to be with him as his wife. And this is the promise of Jesus to us in John 14. Until she sees him again, she has to trust his word and prepare herself for the great day when he returns for her, and not be discouraged by the ridicule of unbelievers. Likewise, we must believe the Lord's promise to come back for us and prepare ourselves for the day of the rapture. You can imagine what happened when she told her family that the young man she'd been seeing was actually King Solomon, and that one day he will return and take her to Jerusalem. They really thought she was in a fantasy world, and so they put her out to work hard in the vineyards. The song begins at the wedding feast, when she's telling the other girls her story. She explains why her skin is so tanned. She'd got burnt in the sun because her brothers had put her out to work extra hard in the vineyards. Likewise, the world thinks we're crazy when we say, my Jesus is coming again as King of Kings. But one day, Solomon returns in power and glory as described in chapter 3. This time he's not dressed as a shepherd, but as the King in all his glory, with all his mighty men with him. Likewise, Christ will return for us at the rapture with his angelic guard of honour. The whole town asks, who is this coming with such a great procession? As it gets closer, they say, it's King Solomon on the day of his wedding with all his mighty men. And then the procession turns into their little town. And as Shulamith looks, she recognises the king as her shepherd lover. He has come for her. He gets out and walks to her house and lifts her up and takes her away back to Jerusalem, where they're married and they have a wedding feast. This is a wonderful picture of the rapture of the church, after which the unbelievers realise that she was telling the truth all the time. The song opens at the wedding feast with her now as the Queen, sitting at table with Solomon and her girlfriends. She tells them all about Solomon and the story of their courtship up to that point, and also their developing relationship, including their first night together. It's the most beautiful picture in the Bible of the divine romance, which is why it's called the Song of Songs, just like the Holy of Holies. We've now covered the teaching of Jesus on the rapture and we've seen that he taught the pre-tribulation rapture that that is the rapture will happen just before the tribulation begins and now we're going on to Paul's teaching on the rapture the Apostle Paul. First of all Paul taught that the rapture is part of the mystery. He did that in 1 Corinthians 15 51 he said behold I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. It's logical that the rapture is called a mystery, because the whole church age was a mystery, hidden in God in the Old Testament times, and only revealed by Christ and the apostles. This age ends with the rapture of the church from the earth. So the rapture is part of the mystery. This means the rapture of the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. And therefore, Jesus was the first one to reveal it. Now the resurrection of the righteous dead when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation is not a mystery, for this was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. But what is new is the rapture of the living, their mortal bodies being changed to immortality. Since the rapture is a mystery, it must be a distinct event from the resurrection of the dead at Christ's second coming. To explain this, let's first of all define the rapture. And here's my definition. The rapture is the coming of Christ for the church in which he instantly catches up all living believers to meet him in the air and translates them into Im- immortal bodies without experiencing death. Not only was this transformation of living believers not prophesied in the Old Testament, but it seems to contradict the Old Testament prophecies of the Messianic Kingdom. You see, if all believers are raptured at the Lord's return, then there'd be no one left to populate the Messianic Kingdom, for all unbelievers are killed at Christ's return. The only solution to this paradox is that the second coming of Christ is in two phases. First he comes for his church to take us to be with him in the rapture, then after a period of time, which is actually seven years, he will return in power to repossess the earth. During this time, many will be saved, and those who endure to the end of this time will inherit the messianic kingdom. Let's now go back to 1 Corinthians 15 to see what will happen to us in the rapture. Verse 51, Behold I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now sleep refers to the state of a Christian's body when it has died, because God will wake it up again on the resurrection morning. The event that Paul describes here applies to those believers who are alive at Christ's coming in the rapture. Paul himself had a strong hope of being in the rapture, for he says, we will be changed. He was not wrong in this, but he had this hope because he correctly believed in imminency, that is, that the rapture can happen at any time. This doctrine of imminency is also seen when it says, we will be changed in a moment. This is the word atomos, which means an atomic second, the shortest possible moment of time. He also said it will happen in the twinkling of an eye, That's the time it takes for a photon of light to reflect off your eye. In other words, it will happen suddenly, with no warning. You'll suddenly find yourself standing before the Lord. Many times Jesus said, I'm coming soon, but really that's a poor translation. It really means I'm coming suddenly, I'm coming quickly, which is again a statement of imminence. Now, for us living in the end times, we can also say Jesus is coming soon, because of all the signs of the times that are fulfilled. Then Paul describes the change that will take place in our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15.53, Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in verse 58, he applies this truth to our life. Therefore, he says, in view of the rapture, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your labour is not vain in the Lord. You see, the teaching on the rapture is very practical. It will motivate you to be steadfast when things get hard, helping you fix your eyes on the prize at the end of your race. You see, when it says your toil or labour in the Lord is not in vain, this is referring to the fact that when you're raptured, you will then stand before the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. The rapture is the completion of our salvation when our bodies are saved from the presence and power of sin. And they're transformed into immortal, glor- glorious bodies, just like that of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. The firstfruits of a harvest, you see, represented the whole harvest. The offering up of the firstfruits to God was the guarantee of the rest of the harvest that would follow. In other words, Jesus' resurrection body is the prototype for our resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, our new bodies will not have blood. Instead, our body will be filled with the glory of God. The glory of God in our spirits will be fully released in and through our bodies. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, even to subdue all things to himself. Our bodies will be changed to be just like Jesus' resurrection body, as the head, so the body, for we are completely united to the head forever. Ephesians 5.27 says that after the rapture, the church will be presented to Christ in all her glory, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, all marks of the fall of sin, of death, will be removed, and we will be holy and without blemish. Jude 24 says God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Paul's letters to the Thessalonians are full of teaching on the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says we are to wait for his son from heaven, not the Antichrist from hell, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are to wait for Jesus who will come for us. When he comes, he delivers us from the wrath to come. His delivering us from wrath is directly connected to his coming. Now Jesus has already delivered us from the wrath of hell by his blood. So this wrath to come must be a different wrath. It must be the wrath of the tribulation. So Jesus must come before the tribulation in order to deliver us from the wrath of the tribulation. So Jesus will come to deliver us from the tribulation. We are not told to look for or expect the tribulation and the Antichrist, but to wait with expectancy for Christ to come and save us from it by means of the rapture, for we've been delivered from all judgment, all wrath, all condemnation. God has promised the church deliverance from all of God's wrath, for Jesus has taken it all on himself. This includes the, the deliverance from the tribulation, since it is a time of divine wrath. Later in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes how the Lord will do this. The classic passage on the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Let's read that. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. It seems that they understood about the rapture of the living and expected it to happen any time. But they didn't know what would happen to believers who died before the rapture. They were concerned that some of their departed brethren would miss out on this wonderful event. Paul encourages them that the dead in Christ will be resurrected at the same time. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so will God bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Although their bodies are in the grave, their spirits are in heaven with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he will bring their spirits with him, and they will be reunited with their bodies and receive resurrection bodies. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, Paul's teaching on the rapture agrees with the teaching of the Lord. We say that those, we, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who fall in asleep. He talks here about two groups of believers, those who are alive and those who are sleeping at the coming of the Lord. He calls the first group, we who are alive, again showing Paul believed in imminency and lived in the expectancy that he would be alive for the rapture. We have all the more reason to believe that we will be part of the rapture generation who will never die than Paul did. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice the magnitude of this event. It's the trumpet of God, not the trumpet of an angel or man. Those who put the rapture at mid-tribulation tend to identify the rapture trumpet with the seventh trumpet of Revelation. But the seventh trumpet is an angelic trumpet releasing judgment, whereas the rapture trumpet is the trumpet of God calling a great assembly of believers in the air. He tells them there's no need to be concerned for those who've died in Christ because they are not going to miss out. In fact, they're going up first. Notice there's no partial rapture here. Those who go up are the dead in Christ. The only requirement is that they are in Christ. Being in the rapture is part of our salvation by grace, independent of our works. Therefore, the only requirement for the living to go up also is that they are in Christ. It will not be a dismembered bride that will be presented to Christ. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be always with the Lord. We get the word rapture from this verse. The word rapture is from the Latin verb, rapto, which was used to translate the Greek word harpazo, translated as caught up. It means to seize or snatch away suddenly. We will all suddenly be caught up and find ourselves rising and meeting the Lord in the air. It will be a huge meeting in the air of the whole church, whether dead or alive. No earthly stadium is big enough, so God has to use the atmosphere. The coming of the Lord and our catching up to meet him will be like a magnet coming down over a box of different materials. Only those with the same iron nature as the magnet will go up. Things that look like they are made of iron but are really plastic will not go up. Thus plastic Christians, pretend Christians, will not go up. But anyone who is born again with Christ within will be drawn up to meet Christ in the clouds by a powerful attraction. When it says, so shall we always be with the Lord, this reveals the purpose of the rapture, the divine romance, the bridegroom coming to for his bride, to be with each other forever. Verse 18 says, therefore comfort one another with these words. In other words, the teaching of the rapture is a comfort to us, especially the pre-tribulation rapture. If the rapture was after the tribulation, then they would not be concerned for those who fell asleep. In fact, they'll be happy for them, as they won't have to go through the tribulation. After describing the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul continues on the same theme in chapter 5, and he starts by discussing the timing of the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul says, Now as to the times and seasons, that's the timing of the rapture and the tribulation, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Because he'd already taught them on this subject. Verse 2 says, The day of the Lord will come or start just like a thief in the night. Now the day of the Lord here is the tribulation. For so the whole tribulation is a time when the Lord intervenes directly in judgment. This is confirmed by verse 3, which describes the start of the day of the Lord in this way. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction, sudden destruction, will come upon them. Suddenly, like labour pains on a woman with a child, and they will not escape. This is the very language Jesus used to describe the start of the tribulation, labour pains. He compares it with a sudden onset of labour pains from which there will be no escape, signifying that this is a worldwide judgment that takes place over a period of time. So when verse 2 says, the day of the Lord starts as a thief in the night, Paul is talking about the start of the tribulation. And he's saying that it, w- it is initiated by the coming of a thief, which is the very language that Jesus used to describe his coming in the rapture. The Bible is consistent in its use of language. Paul knew the teaching of Jesus and he was expounding it. So when Paul referred to the coming of a thief, he was speaking of the rapture. So verse 2 says that the day of the Lord or the tribulation starts with the coming of the Lord in the rapture as a thief in the night. So this is a plain statement that the tribulation begins suddenly with the rapture and it will be a total surprise to the world. This confirms the teaching of Jesus, that the tribulation will start immediately after the rapture. This means that when the thief comes, he must immediately remove something that had been preventing the judgment, so that when it's removed, the result is a sudden onset of destruction. This is speaking of the church, which Jesus will remove from the earth when he comes. This also explains why there's a clear distinction between you, that's the believers, and them, the unbelievers, in this passage. For these two groups will experience the rapture and tribulation in two very different ways. As we read these verses again, notice that it's the unbelieving world, not the church, that experiences the rapture as a thief in the night, and the tribulation as birth pains. Verse 2, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them, not on us. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they, that's the unbelieving world, shall not escape. But true Christians have a different destiny. He continues in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, should overtake you as a thief. Notice how he contrasts the experience of believers and unbelievers. Having said unbelievers will experience his coming as a thief, as they discover multitudes of people have suddenly been taken away, Paul affirms here that the believers will not experience his coming as a thief. Having said that the unbelievers will will not escape the labour pains of the tribulation, Paul affirms that the tribulation will not overtake the believers. He gives the reason for this difference. Unbelievers are in darkness. That is, they are in the kingdom of darkness, which God starts to judge in the tribulation. But believers are in the light. The kingdom of light, not the darkness. And so they don't come under the judgment of the tribulation. So our experience of the Lord's coming will be different from the world. For the world, he's an unknown thief who surprises them and removes the valuables from the earth. But for us, he's our bridegroom coming for his bride to take us home to heaven. He goes on to affirm that as sons of the light, we are not part of the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of light. Verse 4 says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So we don't belong to the darkness of the tribulation when the kingdom of darkness is being judged by the kingdom of light. Instead, we belong in the light of God's glory. Verse 5 says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So we must make sure we are alert and ready for the Lord's coming. Verse 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, hope relates to the future. So the hope of salvation is talking about our expectation of a future salvation, the salvation of our body, which takes place at the rapture. So the salvation he's talking about here is not the salvation of our spirit in the new birth, but of our body in the rapture. We are to put on this hope as a helmet. A helmet covers our mind and directs our vision. These prophetic truths are a necessary part of our spiritual armour protecting our mind whatever battles we're facing, we are to have our helmet firmly fixed on our head, especially the vision of the imminent coming of the Lord to save us in the rapture. Paul again talks about this future salvation when he concludes in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not appointed to wrath, but instead to obtain salvation from this wrath. So we're not appointed to go through the tribulation, but to receive salvation from the tribulation wrath, when Jesus returns for us in the rapture. At that time, we will also receive the salvation of our bodies. So verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, for the tribulation, but instead to obtain salvation in the rapture through our Lord Jesus Christ. The next verse confirms that this salvation through Jesus is not something that's already happened, but something that will happen when Jesus comes for us in the rapture. Verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're alive or dead at the rapture, we will live together with him. This reflects the language of 1 Thessalonians 4, that all believers, dead or alive, will receive a release of resurrection life in their bodies at the rapture and be taken to be with him forever. So instead of experiencing the wrath of the tribulation, Jesus will return and save us in the rapture, transforming our bodies and delivering us from this wrath by removing us from the earth. Another confirmation that Paul has continued to talk about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 5 is in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. This is very similar to what he said at the end of his classic description of the rapture in chapter 4. Again we see the teaching of the imminent pre-tribulation rapture is a great comfort and encouragement for believers, inspiring us to be found ready when he comes. We conclude with a final look at the expression that Paul used to describe the coming of the Lord in the rapture, the thief in the night. First, the rapture is imminent, which means it can happen at any time. A thief doesn't tell the house what time he's coming, neither does he give them any kind of warning sign. Likewise, the rapture will be unannounced. There will be no special warning signs for it. Life will be going on as normal on the earth. Luke 12.40 says, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at a time or an hour you do not expect. So not only do we not know the time of the rapture, for Jesus said no one knows the day or hour, but we also don't know any time when it can't take place, for he said he will come at a time when we don't expect him. He's saying that we cannot know because he hasn't revealed it to us. So we can only speculate. So he deliberately keeps us in suspense, for he could come at any time. Likewise, Matthew 24.40 says, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He's talking to believers here. So it's not just the world that doesn't know the day. Then, in Matthew 24.42, he said, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Secondly, like a thief in the night, Jesus will come when the world is in darkness and asleep. It will be unexpected. The world will be taken off guard and unprepared. The rapture will happen suddenly and take the world by surprise, but those who are awake will be ready for him. Thirdly, the thief comes quickly, takes what he wants and then leaves quickly. When Jesus said at the end of the Bible, I'm coming soon, he really means I'm coming quickly. That's what the real meaning is. Remember, we saw that the whole event will be over in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The word used for the church being caught up is the same as that used for Philip's sudden translation in Acts 8 and Paul's catching up to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Fourth, Jesus comes like a thief to take the precious jewels, that's the believers, from the house, the earth. To the world, it will look like a thief has come taking people from the earth. But he's not really a thief, of course, because he only takes what belongs to him. We belong to him because he's purchased us with his blood. He's coming to claim his own, to snatch us away from the earth and to take us back to his home in heaven. Fifth, Jesus will come quickly, take the believers and leave quickly. He will come, do his work and go unseen. And the world, asleep in the darkness, won't see him or be aware of him. All they'll be aware of is that something valuable has been taken from them. Although 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture as a very noisy event, it will only be noisy in the spirit. Only the believers will hear the trumpet in their spirit, calling them to rise to meet Jesus. As far as the world is concerned, it will happen secretly, just as if a thief had come. However, his second coming will be totally different kind of event. When he comes at the end of the tribulation, he won't be as a thief. He will come publicly manifesting his power and glory so that every eye will see him. The two descriptions of his coming as a thief and as the king of kings are so opposite to each other they couldn't be more different. Therefore they must be descriptions of two different phases of his coming.